0: Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. Today, we're covering the news. I'm Daniel Foch, an investor and a real estate broker at Rare Real Estate. I help people buy and sell properties. And I'm Nick Hill, an investor and mortgage agent at Land Bank Advisors, which
1: means that I help people finance those real estate investment properties.
0: And on that note, if you're listening to this show, we are going to assume that you're looking to invest in real estate. If that's the case, we'd love to help you anywhere in the country. So give us a call.
1: Today, we're finally getting back to some news, which is exciting and timely because after many requests, we are actually going to be starting a newsletter I believe we're the first ones coming out in September. Yeah, Dan.
0: Yeah. Unless we can get uh, rolling on it earlier, but we just want to kind of prepare our audience, get everybody to stay tuned for that. We should have a link maybe within the next couple episodes, maybe in this episode's show notes, but for you to sign up for the newsletter, I had a, a pretty good newsletter going on review, which was like kind of like a sub stack competitor, like a medium competitor before uh, it was like built into Twitter. Anyway, they broke up with Twitter and, um, And I just kind of stopped doing it because I had built like a good following on there and lost it all. So it's something that I've wanted to restart for a while, um, but just haven't really had the bandwidth to do on our own. Um, So we had this great real estate startup in Canada called Patter reach out to help us with it. Yeah, they've also
1: asked us to help out with their product development, which has honestly been a really fun, exciting journey. They're building tech products for landlords, which if you have spent any time as a real estate investor or a landlord in construction, you know that um, we're a little behind the technology curve here in in real estate. So we're excited to try to change that, try to have their founder on the show sometime soon to talk about how investors can start to leverage technology to make their better investments.
0: And the newsletter is really going to embody that. It's it's just, it'll just be the newsletter, you know, kind of, it's going to be going out a weekly touch point summarizing everything that you need to know as an investor in Canadian real estate yeah so basically like this show except you won't have to listen to it you'll have to read it and it'll be
1: it'll be a lot shorter you're not going to be sitting around for 45 minutes worth of reading we wanted to keep it to you know like a five minute read
0: yeah I guess it'll it'll be like the show but just a lot more succinct and less nuanced and in depth and you don't have to listen to our bad jokes and all that (laughs) stuff hey come on um, but very short, quick reads, charts linked to articles, etc., And a lot of it's going to be stuff that you see on the show. Yeah, exactly. So for those of you who are more visual learners rather than
1: audible learners, check it out. Again, charts and, and data points that we talk about on the show that we describe in vivid detail, but that you can't see will be included in the newsletter.
0: Yeah. Or if you're just looking for a visual companion for the show in your inbox once a week, we'll be cross posting a lot of stuff that we talk about on the show here and we'll often be reading article summaries and discussing stuff from the newsletter on the show. Okay, now to
1: introduce our first news article. Are you ready to play a little game, Dan? I'm getting Saw movie vibes again. Well, I am sitting on a tricycle right now, so that makes sense. Um, Guess this song from the lyrics as I read them. Okay, fun. I can do that. That's easy. The Roof. The roof, the roof is on fire. I already know this one. You even said it with a cadence, so like <laughs> I know I should have just read it normally. Now, just let me keep going. Okay, we
0: don't need no water. You can't say this next part. It's this is a PG show. Let the pre-construction site burn. Oh, okay, I see what you did there. <laughs> oh wow, are we doing jokes on that now? I
1: mean, listen, I I never joke about the real residential fire because most of those are obviously quite sad and, and devastating. But there's this wild trend of homes under construction right now that are being
0: burned down lately, which is kind of a sick, sad, ironic joke within itself. Yeah, Um, there seems to be some correlations forming. Um, Speaking of which, do you know what the leading cause of house fires is? It's definitely darts. Not even close, but (laughs) strangely enough, that is actually the leading cause of death from fires. So people dying from fires is caused by darts. stack and even did a, a full article on it it's sad stuff actually but uh where cause was identified most fire deaths in Canada, canadian homes were from smoking at 22 percent so wow. more than one in five arson or set fire was 10 percent. cooking was seven percent electrical was seven percent and then candles was three percent yeah you know you hate to
1: see smoking up there it's so avoidable um contrast that with the causes of fires without dying which are the major causes: um, cooking at twenty percent, heating equipment related twelve percent, arson eleven percent, electrical fires make up eight percent. Smoking drops down to seven percent here, and candles. Those beautiful, you're, you know, you're getting all romantic and you're having a drawing, a bath for yourself, Dan, like you usually do with the bubbles and all that,
0: and you light a candle and every, you fall asleep. <laughs> every every Friday night, <laughs> bath. I I do like how both lists end with candles. <laughs> yeah. And now adding to that list...
1: People setting fires to pre-cons? Is that going to take up a few percentage points here?
0: Yeah, it's funny. I I actually tried mapping a correlation between interest rates and the flammability of pre-construction homes in the GTA. So, like, as interest rates go up, lumber gets more
1: flammable? Apparently. Something going on there. I mean, I just can't believe how these articles have transpired. So, there's construction site fires in Ottawa late last year, then in Vaughan in April – Oakville in June, then Burlington just recently, uh, which leads us to this article, a massive fire in a Vaughan construction site destroys at least 20 new homes, quote, complete write offs large fire in Burlington destroys six homes and another article headlined hundreds without power after Burlington construction site fire. And listen, you guys have seen this on the news, right? This is, this is newsworthy stuff. It's on TV.
0: I mean, these are shocking images of, of brand new houses up in flames. Yeah. I was actually at the CP 24 studio when the Burlington one happened, it was like right before my segment about pre-con sales going down. Um, and there's covering, I'm seeing all these aerial shots of. I think the blaze was actually like that. The The units were actually on fire while I was there. So, um, are you giving me an alibi or something? Uh, yeah. Right that's now? I wasn't there. Okay. It was, I, had I, had was, it. I was on TV. Um, this was very common in the 90s, though, when apparently things were getting pretty ugly. There's literally an article that says, Why are Toronto homes under construction catching fire? Uh, and then. This is the wild one. So on August fourth, this thing comes out with a video of a guy setting a house on fire in a construction site.
1: Yeah, <laughs> two firefighters unfortunately are injured battling this blaze, and police are searching for a firebug in Brampton, which is, I guess, a cute way of saying arsonist
0: these days. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I don't know. I mean, the guy. There's the video is like literally. Um, it's been posted a lot um, on. On Instagram, there's some some funny like memes made about it. I posted it on Twitter. I reposted that meme on on Twitter, but it's just wild. Like especially that there's now a video of somebody, and you can see like it's this house. It's just um sheathed in plywood. It's like a perfect, you know, it's like Burning Man. Like honestly, it literally is. It's like somebody <laughs> yeah. built like you know, it's that's it's like, like Burning Man, but it's a burn. Like yeah. there's no there's no um, masonry cladding on the exterior. Nothing. It's just this giant. Or uh, it's just well, you know, a house under construction with plywood, and anyway. So let's just talk about this one for now.
1: Yeah, I mean, first question is what the hell is going on? I mean, I guess a few of the questions are, you know, who would benefit from doing something like this, and then I guess the uh, kind of tied to it is why would someone do this? I mean, that is a, this is a massive risk. This is like jail time, and you know, you're you're destroying livelihood and property, and and. You know, this, this is a massive criminal offense and you know outside of you know doing psychedelics and getting dusty in the desert and burning some cool statues down this is this is a far cry from from anything that's that's fun or entertaining this is this is like you know a seriously negative thing especially in the midst of a housing crisis so damn, who who stands to benefit from this
0: yeah so it's funny because when i when the when the uh no, when the Burlington one happened, I, I've been like weighing whether or not I wanted to post this, like, cause nobody had, had made the comment, but it was like, there seems to be a correlation forming between, um, interest rates and house, house fire or pre fires. Right. And, uh, anyway, I posted it on the last one. And uh, then this video came out yesterday on, on the 4th of August and, um, Tom Kustra, who's hilarious on Instagram, by the way, you should, should follow him, um, posted the, the video of the. That came out of this arsonist running away from the pre-construction house and it literally just says like POV uh, you bought a home pre-construction and interest rates went up and you can't afford to close yeah and so and and honestly like if if I were to examine the likelihood of the most likely individual to have committed that crime um, I'm going to say that's probably the case
1: but just I mean so messed up right I mean hey look that desperate times equal desperate measures for a lot of people right And and You know, not to get dark here, but we saw this back in 08 a lot, right? Where people were pushed to the financial brink and and started to do some some really horrible things to either themselves or things around them and and you know as as funny as this is in in memes and and whatnot this is also like a really really bad thing right i mean like you know so the person that benefits is the person that doesn't have to close on the house anymore because it's been burnt down and and now they you know they have created a way out of what would have been obviously a massive problem for them.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of people are like, well, you know, it's not like they don't have to close anymore. And it's like it's true, right? They they will have to close on the house. Like insurance will rebuild the house. The house will still they'll still have a contract to purchase that home. They're just delaying. Yeah, it's just like, it's just, just another themselves another what maybe six year. months? Yeah, six year, months, maybe right? six months. Yeah, but so, but and and this kind of shows you like that that desperation that you're talking about and the um the lack of logic and critical thinking that's going in like imagine being trapped in such a bad position that the most logical way out seems like to burn that that thing down right and it's yeah. not like you know it couldn't be argued that it, that all of these are that case but the likelihood of the, all of this I'd becoming say, such a common thing probably seems most. a little suspicious yeah yeah and so i, I just and and a lot of people are like, oh, like what the do the builders benefit? Like, are the builders doing it? It's like no, a builder's not gonna, bur- like they don't care. They don't care if you can't close. The they're someone else will buy. They the can house. sue you for the difference. Well, yeah, yeah, and they can sue you for the difference. So yeah. mechanically, before we move on to the next news article here, it's worth understanding how pre-construction works, especially with assignments and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So if you buy a house preconstruction and you can't close on it, you are you're in default and they immediately will get your deposit. And so this person who burned the house down maybe had put down $200,000 of the deposit. And maybe they're also in negative equity by another $200,000. So they're on the hook for a difference of 400 grand with this builder. That, like somebody would burn a house down for 400 grand. I, people would burn a house down for way yeah. less than that likely. <laughs> yeah. So. The builder doesn't care if you don't close because they can they just it's annoying but they would just sue you for the difference. They mm-hmm. get your deposit and then they would sue you for the difference so that would be damages at least in in Ontario and in a couple of other provinces. That's what the court precedent says that they can sue you for the difference. So And, you know, the deposits are insured. There's a bunch of different factors that tell me that the builder doesn't really care that much. And we discussed this at length on a Twitter space um, in the high rise space, which high rise being made out of concrete, much more difficult to burn down, Um, but equally, (laughs) equally uh, challenging from the investment perspective.
1: Yeah. You know, they say you shouldn't run away from your problems.
0: You also shouldn't just burn your problems right. to the ground, <laughs> I think. Okay, enough of that. It's like a practice on. though. Like, you know, people like write something in a, in, on a note and then put it in the fire. Like it's one yeah. of those. Anyway, <laughs> maybe that's what he was doing. He put maybe. his contract in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll see. Okay, so
1: let's move on to some more kind of bad interesting news here, Dan. Um, this is on the commercial side of things. so. If you're listening to the show, you know we like to cover all asset classes here, and of course, we're not going to forget about our big commercial friends at the likes of Cushman and Wakefield and JLL. And unfortunately, these two are newsworthy right now because Cushman and Wakefield and JLL, which are massive real estate brokerages globally, their profits have slid by more than 90% percent. Am
0: I reading that right? 90%? That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, now that is that their profit, um, which means that, you know, like profits can be changed by both inputs and outputs. So, you know, take it, it's not like their revenue decri- declined that much, but but still, um, it was a brutal second quarter for two giant Chicago-based brokerages as the article says.
1: Yeah, JLL's net income last quarter was a fraction of what it was during the same period of last year, dropping to million from 335 million wow equity losses were also a major factor totaling 103.5 million last quarter compared to 53.6 million in earnings in the second quarter of
0: 2022 so ceo christian Albrick on Thursday's earnings call, described the markets as muted and attributed limited transaction volumes to so the higher cost of capital and the highest cost or cost of capital, um, tighter lending standards, and elevated price uncertainty.
1: Yeah, and Cushman this week announced a forty million in cost cutting measures for the year, in addition to a ninety million cost cutting program that the brokerage had already previously announced. The brokerage realized 49 million in savings in the first half of 2023, and experts, um, and ex- sorry, and expects to save a total of 130 million this year. Um, and that is from the uh, CFO Neil Johnston on uh, on their call. So, Dan, what do we make of this? I mean, these are some big, big players in in the space, and it seems like the numbers are moving the wrong way here.
0: Yeah, I think the reality is everyone's suffering, right? Like, there's no. Asset class, there's no, there's nothing that's not impacted by the, this in, increase in interest rates. You're mm-hmm. seeing it in crypto. Yeah, I guess you're not really seeing it in equities right now, but you kind of did early on when rate hiking, hiking started. Um, but you know, now they're back up to all time highs, um, perhaps in a risky way. But <laughs> um, I, I think commercial real estate is really going to be the poster child for this downturn. It's facing a lot of uncertainty. And it's facing a lot of, it's getting assaulted from all angles, right? It's getting, um, you know, retail is being pushed out by e-commerce in a lot of, of ways. And that was a trend that started pre COVID, but has been exacerbated by COVID. Uh, work from home is having a major impact on the office. And that was a trend that started prior to COVID, but is being exacerbated by COVID. Yeah. Um, industrial is faring relatively well because of um, onshoring as well as just general economic growth and strength um multifamily same thing is being and i think both of those are just really components of you know the economy growing population growing but the reality is is that re- many asset classes are are being impacted because interest rates are too high and there are also shifts just happening in the way that consumers consume that type of real estate and i would say You know, housing, we've seen the same thing, small cap real estate investment. We saw the same thing. There were, there were these cycles, there were these downturns. And it, this is just where you're seeing it and the when you're seeing it in, in commercial real estate. Yeah. I mean, commercial was
1: always. You know, the sexiest thing in in real estate, right? I mean, I was speaking to a commercial broker last night. They're trying to fill a brand new space downtown Toronto. And she was jokingly asking me like, hey, do you know anyone looking for 230,000 square feet of class A office space right now? Um, I said no, because, you know, who's who's looking for that kind of stuff right now? We've seen the likes of of Shopify and some of the big banks even and, and major tech companies actually buy themselves out of massive leases that they've signed years ago, um, just adapting for this new world that we're going into with more work from home, less space required, more flex workspace. So very interesting. And, you know, you hate to see... Um, you know the the big guys like this suffer because that usually means that the little guys are suffering even more. Um, but again, I think all cyclical you know commercial real estate will will have its day in in the dumps and it'll come back up uh, just just as, just as strong. and I think that's a great segue to what's really affecting all of this, which
0: is inflation. So Dan start us off here with the, with the next news piece. Yes, before we do that, I just want to also comment that these brokerages make money on the transaction of real estate. So if if their values are going down or if their revenues are going down that means that people are buying and selling less real estate. There's less real estate transaction going down. And if if that and you're seeing it in the um M&A space as well. Canaccord I think just laid off um, 75 people in in Canada so there's less deal making happening in there, there's just generally less economic activity happening around the transaction space. Totally. Yeah. And that to me is a bit of a leading indicator because once the market becomes uh like there's a, there's some friction and it almost goes no bid, that means that you as an investor have less competition. So it might be a sign actually to really start looking actively for deals, not buying them and not being impulsive yet, but being patient, like you say, patiently. What is it? Patiently impulsive. I mean, I I just stole that from Johnny. To Such be a honest. Johnny thing to say yeah. too, but. Um, it's you know that this is when you want to start looking and start shopping and start seeing what's in the market scan the market see what the deals analyze, are analyze start
1: analyzing yeah. deals cuz again everyone's like oh, I'm going to wait I'm going to wait for the market yeah. to to fall blah 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 okay well if you're just waiting and then you're you only start analyzing and getting active when prices are down or prices are starting to go back up like no one can time the market so you need to be ready to pounce on this stuff when you find that good deal and you can find good deals at the bottom, at the top, in the middle, all that.
0: Yeah, you want to be buying at peak fear, right? Yeah. And, and I don't think we're at peak fear yet in Canada, but we're getting pretty close to it. Fear, like the, the thing that we say a lot on the show is good deals are made, not found. So your likelihood of of finding a good deal is going to be good, just finding a good deal is going to be good during a period of, of despair or economic suffering. Um, but other people are going to be looking for those deals as well. The best place to find the best deals is when other people aren't looking for those deals. When there's so much fear in the market that not a lot of other people are out there really trying to be buying assets because maybe prices are still moving down or maybe there's a lot of economic uncertainty. And when you're at peak fear, you know, as Warren Buffett says, you might have heard of this guy. He's a decent investor, made a little <laughs> bit of money in his life. You want to be greedy when others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy. Um, anyway, let's move over to inflation. So, Canadian inflation is about to get a boost due to a base effect, says BMO.
1: Yeah. I, I feel like you just put this one in here and you're reading this one to give yourself a pat on the back because I guess you called this one before the BMO
0: economist did. So yeah, well that's, done. That's exactly what I'm doing. Honestly, you know me too well.
1: <laughs> Canada's inflation surge is leaving almost as quickly as it appeared. Okay. Okay be a little preemptive there but it's not gone yet bmo capital markets wrote to investors this morning warning the consumer price index that's the cpi is
0: about to get a boost from gasoline prices yeah so a base effect they explained it better than i did to be fair a base effect that helped to lower the headline cpi growth is about to work in the opposite direction which will appear as an acceleration of inflation if the central bank doesn't navigate this issue carefully, it can turn into an actual problem requiring higher interest rates.
1: Yeah, I feel like we we probably don't need to go too much more into
0: this one. We did cover it a little bit in, in the last episode or one of the more recent ones. Yeah, we, we covered it in our recent episode uh, and it's also in my rare report. So let's just jump to the next article. For sure. So we, we're going from CPI to
1: HPI which is the home price index. Canada's revision of the real
0: estate price index is unreliable, warns economists. So Canada's most prominent house price index, or HPI, has received a change that could make it unreliable, warms a prominent firm. Oxford Economics, Tony Stilo, there, great guy, is warning clients that the latest changes due to the Canadian Real Estate Association, HPI, makes it problematic. The latest change has led to a massive historical reversion, minimizing growth over the past few years. As a result, the firm will no longer rely on the HPI and in some cases won't be using Korea data at all. Wow. I, le- I love Oxford Economics, so uh, yeah, like yeah, I read all their stuff. You.
1: So the HPI is the source of the CREA benchmark or the typical home price. Since the composition of sales changes from month to month, there can be a large variation in the average and median sales prices. The HPI in theory solves this problem by creating an index. This index makes quantitative and qualitative adjustments using the approach that's more
0: typical in appraisals. Yeah, I'm excited to chat more on this one because this stuff fascinates me, but um, I'll, I'll just keep reading the article here. So prominent economics suggests that that they should be using more reliable measures like the Terranet National Bank HPI, which is actually interesting. A really good friend of mine actually made that tool. Wow. Uh, yeah, like a childhood friend of mine. Um, a, and uh, a central issue here is that is what the HPI actually measures. So most people assume it measures the change in home prices, but that's not the way Stilo sees it. By using this appraisal style model, he argues it, uh, it measures the value people assign to each attribute in a home's price. So in tight markets, things like location and amenities play a smaller role that in determining price. The HPI would be of little benefit to anyone looking to determine those trends. So what do you think here? I mean, I'm interested because this goes back to, again, a recent article that we did on what home
1: buyers want in 2023 and the levels of importance, right? Does a garage, is, is a garage more important than a redone kitchen? You know, where's a main floor bathroom? All, all of that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I think it's subjective to to each buyer. I also think it's subjective to the area that you're in across the country. But, you know, I, I mean, I'm interested. I mean, Dan, you you would know this this topic better than I do.
0: So, what, what are your thoughts? I think that, you know, they mentioned how these HPIs kind of came out to be more reliable than things like the median and average sale prices, which don't account for seasonality. Totally. Yeah. But I don't, I think that those, like, I think that that's actually these associations underestimating the intelligence of the consumers and not it giving them. Never a, do right? that. And, and, and kind of putting it under the guise of like trying to be helpful. But it's actually not, it's, you know, we're not helping to train our consumers to have better financial literacy and better understanding about, around real estate data. Um, I've like been a massive proponent of just giving people a look at what seasonality looks like in real estate. Mm-hmm. So I always use average and median house price and I just tell people what seasonal growth looks like. So I'll always use your over year charts showing, um, you know, this year, January to May was a good example. House prices in most Canadian markets went up um, what between five and 10%, but they always do that. And you just need to tell people the story. They always do that. And so, you know, if it's, if your typical seasonal year from January to May is 5% and this year it grew 7%, then you can say, okay. And like, this is a very, it's an oversimplification, but we only need an oversimplification. We can say, okay, well, house prices probably grew about 2% this year. And now, as I mentioned in the the rare report and, you know, in in a lot of the articles I've been doing on Canadian Real Estate Association stats, um, prices have fallen from May and they will fall until August. That happens Mm -hmm. every year without, you know, with some outliers. Um, And I'm going to get to the outliers because it's an important piece of the puzzle. But prices fall in the summer, let's say 5% typically. As long as you're telling people that, this always happens, Right. Then, okay, if prices fall 6%, they can say, okay, we probably saw a real decline of 1%. To try and like package it into these HPIs, I think is these reporting agencies just saying, you know, the consumers don't really get it. We have to like really boil it down to just like a line, right? People want to know the real number. They want to know what the average house price is, even if it's not necessarily that reliable. And And I'll leave it with this. They've just admitted that their number isn't that reliable and it needs to be changed so often, <laughs> right? And this is, this is now is changing it so that if you look at the price over time, it looks a lot smoother. Mm-hmm. So it's removing some of that volatility. The reason why is because when we talk about that seasonal adjustment, let's think about seasonal adjustment right now and let's just use the City of Toronto data because it's the easiest one. In April, seasonally adjusted prices looked really, really high in April of this year. Now, if you look at April data for the last five years in Canada. You have 2017, you had a huge drop in price. 2020, you had the lockdown. And then 2022, you had another huge drop in price. So three of the five years in this seasonal adjustment are bad. So now when you're looking at your seasonal adjusted prices in 2023, your seasonal adjusted volume in 2023, it's going to look great. And it did. April data looked great and it shouldn't have. But it, when you're comparing it to a seasonal adjustment of those three bad years in your last data set, now all of a sudden it gets skewed. So there's this book. If you want a really great, quick read about this stuff, it's called How to Lie with Statistics. Um, <laughs> I would highly recommend anybody reads it because it'll, it'll help really like just trigger the way that you or change, sorry, change the way, um, that you, that you think about this stuff. Let's get to condo prices.
1: Yeah. Speaking of prices, um, there's some activity in the condo market. There's a new report that examines how rising interest rates have impacted home prices in Canada. Shocking. It's like we've never talked about this before. Yeah.
0: And uh I think it actually is um it's all uh properties, not just condos. I just uh I for some reason I put condos in the heading there. But it says, uh so this is a report from Century 21, and this is a CTB news article about it. Um, so, with the Bank of Canada's interest rate hikes aimed at fighting inflation, the housing market in Canada experienced a slight drop in prices, according to a new report from Century 21 Canada. The data came out from their report called the Price Per Square Foot Survey, which compares the price per square foot of properties sold between January 1st and June 30th of the current year to the same period in previous years. Uh, it's actually good. They cover every market. So... Let's just read the article and discuss it.
1: Yeah, for sure. So breaking down the data regionally, British Columbia experienced the most significant price decline among the provinces. However, the prices have generally remained at or above levels seen in 2021. Interestingly enough, the Victoria region in B.C. was an exception and witnessed growth in real estate prices. I mean, Victoria, just so beautiful out there. I, I can see why it's a little insulated.
0: Yeah, I, it doesn't uh, doesn't surprise me as well. Like I think you just a lot of these markets where they are a little bit more affordable. Affordable, you can get just people moving from maybe a Vancouver to a Victoria, staying within the same province, and then people from other places in in the country moving in there as well. In Ontario, various changes were observed in real estate prices, ranging from declines to increases across the province. Condos experienced a sixteen percent price decrease which is huge, uh, but still remained expensive at a price per square foot of over $1,000. On the other hand, cities like Niagara Falls and Cambridge saw significant double-digit growth in the prices of single-family homes. I actually don't know if that's uh, correct, but uh, anyway, I guess we'll see. This trend was consistent with cities farther away from the greater Toronto area experiencing growth in single-family home prices. Maybe they did in the, I guess, in Q1 of this year. There was a a pretty strong run-up in the spring.
1: Not, not today, though. Now on to Alberta, which has experienced the most growth in real estate prices over the past year with consistent increases in price per square foot in most of its markets. The growth was steady and moderate throughout the first half of 2023. Even in regions that saw declines, prices did not drop below the 2020 levels. Calgary witnessed a 5.81% increase in single family home prices and a 9.82% increase in condo prices. While nearby uh, markets saw a substantial 14% increase in condo prices. However, Edmonton condos were an exception and experienced slight declines in prices.
0: I like how you just said nearby markets rather than trying to pronounce, is that? Auca Awkatox, I. (laughs) Thanks for calling me out on that one. My pleasure. In Atlantic (laughs) Canada, prices have continued to rise. Detached homes in Fredericton, Moncton, and in St. John all saw double-digit increases. However, condo prices in Halifax saw the smallest increase in the region after a sharp double-digit increase last year.
1: Now, when it comes to Montreal, the city experienced a decline in prices of condos and in detached homes. However,
0: the decline was modest and remained in the single digits. Finally, the real estate markets in Manitoba and Saskatchewan remained relatively stable with minor gains and losses observed across the board. Um, Also, if you are a real estate professional in Saskatchewan, I will be there for the Saskatchewan Realtors Association, I guess, annual Get together. I don't remember exactly what it's called, but I'm going to be doing a a keynote speech for the lunchtime there um, on the 12th of September in Regina. Um, In Saskatoon, detached home prices have the highest per square foot growth at $344. While, or sorry, sorry, not growth, but highest per square foot price at $344, while Winnipeg, Brandon, and Regina follow the trend with their detached single family homes priced at $291. Two two seventy six and two seventy five per square foot, respectively. So Winnipeg two ninety one, Brandon two seventy six, and Regina two seventy five per square foot. No. And this is for detached homes.
1: Those are some prices I can get behind.
0: Yeah, seriously. Um, all right, let's wrap it up with our final
1: article here. Dan, what is, uh, what's the title of our final article? I'm, I'm excited to read this one, but also discuss it a little bit because it kind of ties into some of the commercial stuff we were talking about
0: earlier. I can't see it, so you're going to have to read it to me.
1: The cities with the most remote hybrid workers in Canada. With its stunning scenery, abundant sunshine, and plethora of wineries, a British Columbian city is proving to be the draw for remote workers. The metro area around Kelowna is where desire for remote workers is strongest amongst Canada's big cities with nearly 49% when you're so just call it 50% nearly 50% of the job applicants submitted in the region over the last year being for remote positions. I mean, I get it. Like, if you're going to work remotely, why not do it in, you know, as close to, you know, Canadian paradise as you can and Kelowna kind of fits that bill. So the finding is the courtesy of a new study from LinkedIn's economic graph research team. Dan, we're going to have to start pulling some stuff from these guys, which analyzed more than 12 million remote job applications submitted on the platform between May 22 and May
0: 2023. Love it. I can see this now, so I'm just going to read your part. (laughs) According to the data, remote workers tend to, to head for Canada's coasts the seaside city of victoria came second so it explains kind of that big boost in price that we saw on the list of large cities with 45.6% of job applications being for remote positions so i guess so the data point is percentage of remote or percentage of remote um positions uh of the sorry percentage of the total job applications that are remote positions in yeah. that city interesting yeah. Um, I'd be curious to see the inverse of that, which is if you post a job, like what percentage comes from each, like post a remote job, what percentage comes from each city just to see like, cause that would give you your pure concentration almost. But anyway, maybe I'll, I'll reach out to them, uh, regarding actually, you know, who will have that is, uh, Brendan Bernard from uh indeed their economists, and we you know we love indeed on the show they're that's a, of course a show partner, yeah so.
1: reach out indeed you got some you've got some charts to make for us <laughs> yeah
0: um regarding smaller locales this is why twitter is great i'm literally just going to do exactly what we just said we're going to do i'm going to post this chart on twitter tag brendan bernard ask him if he has the inverse data which he does and then we'll make <laughs> some cool stuff and we'll, we'll follow up soon um we should actually have him on the show he's a great great economist Regarding smaller locales with fewer than 100,000 LinkedIn members, which is just great, uh, <laughs> great platform LinkedIn, uh, the metro areas around Moncton, 47.7% and St. John's, 38.7% drew the most remote workers. So they've got this
1: great graphic here, Dan, and I know we've got a couple minutes left here. Let's just go through some of the top large metros for remote workers and then let's look at some of the top small metro for remote workers and everyone should probably be listening up because... This is, you know, when we talk about what kind of data you want to be looking for as an investor, you know, it's not just, oh, it's on a transit line or, you know, they're putting new infrastructure here. It's like it's this little nuance stuff that that really makes a difference. Right. So like, hey, top large metros for remote work, Kelowna, B.C., almost 50 percent. That means 50 percent of the people moving to Kelowna, you know they're going to be remote uh, remote workers. That What does that mean for their lifestyle? Does that mean that they're only there for a couple of years? Maybe it's a better short-term or medium-term market. Maybe they're looking for furnished rentals. You know, there's, there's, there's all these data points out there that can be amalgamated and put into your investing thesis. So I'm going to take some of the top large metros for remote work. And uh, why don't you take some of the small ones?
0: Yeah, before we do that, I think it's interesting. It's fascinating, at least from my perspective, the way I see it is we know that you're still going to see uh, probably a higher wage if you're more proximate to work, if you're going into work. But people are, we're starting to see people make the compromise where they're willing to leave and be further away from the workplace and take a hit on wage to get affordability, to get better quality of life, et cetera, et cetera. This is a real trend that's happening. And from my perspective, it's making more viable investments in cities like interior bc in some of these rural markets you know people just moving up to muskoka in ontario right or moving to niagara on the lake or the east coast or whatever it is where you get a little you get the best of both worlds you get better quality of life and so you're almost seeing like before COVID, everybody wondered whether or not millennials were ever going to de-urbanize right like the Everybody always thought we were just going to stay in cities forever, never have kids, never move to the suburbs. <laughs> yeah. And COVID really changed that. And, uh, and, and it's interesting because I think that this is a, a permanent shift that like there's a line drawn in the sand where everything's going to be different from this point forward. And so there's, there's something to be seen in that data anyway. So top large metros for remote
1: work. Kelowna, BC, we just talked about at almost 50%. Victoria, another beautiful spot in British Columbia at 45%. Saskatoon, Saskatchewan at almost 42%. So again, there's, there's that affordability, right? We don't, you're not likely living in a cottage on water in Saskatoon, but affordability is, you know, 10 times, if not 100 times better than downtown Toronto, for instance. Halifax, Nova Scotia, 41%, Winnipeg, Manitoba at 40%, Ottawa, Ontario, 40%, Regina, 38%, Calgary, 36%, Kitchener, Ontario, 35%, and London, Ontario at 35%.
0: Dan, walk me through some of the top smaller metros for remote work. Yeah, so the smaller metros, um, Moncton, New Brunswick, 47.7% 47.7% of job applications were for remote work. St. John's, Newfoundland, 38.7. St. Catharines, Ontario, interesting one, um, 38.4%. That's the stomping grounds of Alexis on Fire, by the way. I saw them play that hometown show there last year, <laughs> a couple years ago. Kingston, Ontario, 36. Sherbrooke, Quebec, 35. Abbotsford, Mission, BC, 34.7%. Barrie, Ontario, 33.6%. I mean, a decent example, right? Kepinville Bay, uh, Sudbury, Ontario, similar thing. You know, mm-hmm. you get that rural life, nice lakes. Looks like, a, it's like a cottage country city almost. Very cool. Guelph, Ontario, and Windsor, Ontario, all um, seeing, you I know, mean, a large portion of people who are searching for jobs in, in, in that city are looking for remote work. And this is interesting because Guelph is like, has always been the most well-employed city had like the lowest employment rate. It was always like a, their claim to fame. So, cause I, I thinking, reading this data, I was thinking, Oh, you know, maybe it's because people in Moncton or St. John's or Barrie can't find a job that pays well enough in that city. So they're looking for jobs outside of the city. That's what just, I'm thinking out loud, right? While, while you're saying this and, um, Then when I see things like Guelph or or Barry or or sorry Guelph or Sudbury or Windsor on this list, um, those are very well employed cities and they have good high paying jobs. So it's interesting, fascinating from my perspective that people are in those locations looking for jobs outside of the city because it's not going to be purely financially motivated. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, human behavior has uh, has changed. Um, I think that's a great place to call it. Remember, yeah, we did cover some some bad news, some interesting news, but we always keep it positive at the end. So, you know, look at charts like this. Look for these random little data points and get them into your investing thesis. Use these for your benefit. Um, Each one of these markets um, is is on my radar for a whole new reason. So use this and um,
0: use it to your advantage. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Make sure you check out realestatemerch.ca, buy some merch from us and realestatemeetups.ca because we got a bunch of meetups and good events coming up in the fall this year. Love it. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon.
1: The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Centre and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317 Agent License M21004037.
0: Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.